0: Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast, uh, deputising for Jenny Bully in the host's comfy chair. Today, you're listening to me, Danny Eccleston. This episode of Mojo Innovators is all about an artist who not only revolutionised their genre of music multiple times, but has become a kind of icon for creative innovation generally. A musician who's seen positively allergic to doing the same thing the same way twice, and an inspiration to subsequent waves of musicians in all genres looking for a model for how to forge your own path. Today, we're talking about jazz trumpeter, band leader, sonic visionary, and all-round musical Superman, Miles Davis. Helping us pick three moments where Miles changed music and helping sift his innovation credentials, we have two people who really know their stuff. We've got jazz trumpeter Sheila Maurice Gray, who you'll have heard on recordings by Coco Rocco, Neria, and the Seed Ensemble. Hello, Sheila. Hi. <laughs> and we have Jazz FM presenter Chris Phillips. Hello. Hi, Danny. Hello. Now, no doubt controversially, we've settled on three moments when Miles Davis changed jazz and music generally in profound ways. First, the recordings he made with his nine-piece group in 1949 and 1950 that later became known as The Birth of the Cool. Second, his 1959 album, Kinda Blue, often cited as the best-selling instrumental jazz record of all time, although surely this title would be disputed by Kenny G. And third, (laughs) Electric Miles, the wild jazz rock that he innovated as the 60s turned into the 70s, as exemplified by the 1969 album In a Silent Way, A 1970s Bitches Brew. So, team. Can we start where Miles Davis is at the end of the 40s? He's just swapped East St. Louis for New York City, dropped out of Juilliard Music School, and he's played with the bebop big cheese Charlie Parker. So he's established himself as one of the young Turks of the scene. But what's notable or particularly appealing about his early style, Sheila?
1: Yeah, I'm just going by what I've transcribed and how I started to listen to jazz. And Miles is one of the, the, the main people I kinda of looked at. There's some recordings where you hear him playing the blues. He's basically interpreting it his own way. I guess when you transcribe them, they're solos that don't quite make sense when you try and um analyse them, I guess harmonically. But melodically they make so much sense and that's what matters. Yeah, you're you're hearing him like you said, a, a kind of establishing himself, um, his sound. He's got quite a clear sound, actually, at that age, at a young age. And, um, yeah, it's weird when you listen to those solos. For me now, listening to those solos, as opposed to me, uh, maybe five years ago, listening to those solos. It's so interesting to hear. Yeah, you hear it with, with completely different ears. I can't remember which solo it is, but there's a solo on... Uh, um, a Charlie Parker solo. But basically he takes a solo and it, it literally does not make any sense, well, um, for, for me anyway, but melodically it's it's just amazing. And then later on there's another album where he, um, he plays straight no chaser, but um, Red Garland quotes his solo. And um, yeah, it's really, really interesting to hear how iconic his solo was at that time with him not really realising it.
0: So... How did he differ from the previously noted jazz trumpeters? I suppose Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie—the kind
2: of key notes here—is he? How is he forging his own path, Chris? Mars is an interesting subject because he came from quite a middle-class background. I think his dad was a quite an affluent man, a dentist, um, and so he—I guess—he had a little cushion there where he could sort of drop into a world and, and exist in it and find his own feet, his own voice. If you look at the trumpeters that came before, and even before Louis Armstrong um, and Dizzy Gillespie, they all have their unique kind of foibles and, and styles. I mean, obviously, Louis Armstrong represents that the birth of, of jazz, New Orleans, and that, and that whole thing. I mean, there's an airport and a park named after him. There, that's how important he is. Um, Dizzy Gillespie is an interesting case because bebop was club music, and that was where all the young black kids used to go and dance and and be entertained by a reflection of themselves on the stage. Dizzy Gillespie as a player would compose music using rhythm and then he would put notes in where the rhythm was. Right? And if you take Mars and you look forward uh, further down Mars' career, it's virtually the opposite. It's about the space around Mars' music. And I think you mentioned a, a solo. It may have been Now's the Time with Charlie Parker where yes, he he time. plays this yeah. solo and you can literally hear the next phase of Miles coming there, early, early doors, you know, and leads into the, the birth of the cool. And obviously he's a brilliant technician on the trumpet, but the consumer artist who, as we've learnt down the years, like when many of those artists that you are feature in different genres on, on this series, tore everything up that was behind him and burnt it and reinvented himself. David Bowie, a classic example. No doubt David would have been hugely influenced by Miles as well, you know. So yeah, I think that's where you see the the starting to hear the voice of Miles Davis appear in the mid mid forties. He had he was so into his music that it was to the detriment of his personal relationships. Um, You know, he he he, he ignored his wife and basically forgot about his child as well because he was following Charlie Parker around, wanted to be in that band. He was desperate to be a part of that, and he emerged from that with his own his own incredible band, of course. But um, someone who was obsessed with music, as we've seen. Um, over the the subsequent decades. So what's significant
0: about the 1949-1950 sessions of his nine-piece band that collected later on become known as The Birth of the Cool? What's striking about this music, Sheila?
1: Um, Like, once again, I'm just going to talk from my own personal Mm. experience. So, um, yeah, I remember when I first started really getting into jazz, I think I was like 19, 20, a lot later on. And I remember listening to The Birth of Core and um the thing that strikes me is um obviously he was working with Gil Evans but um obviously all the tunes had cru- quite clear structures in terms of um you've got the head and solos and heads but the heads themselves, um when I said the head I mean the, the tune, the melody. The melodies were quite clear melodies, but the voicings that I guess Gil Evans and um would have worked on were Truly magical and one of a kind. Yeah, one of my favorite tunes. I think it's is it Moon Dreams, but yeah, it's just like it's such a a, a beautiful uh, arrangement um, that really really and um, encapsulates the um, the tune title. The whole record actually is really really beautiful and it's very dreamlike. I guess it, I guess it's the uh, Gill style of um, of um, arrangement arranging. Sorry, but yeah, I really dig that.
2: I think what you're seeing with both yeah. of the cool is Miles and his um peers kinda wanted to get over Bebop, you know, and leave that behind and and develop a new narrative around the music, a new style of playing and 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 create more ability to expand on what they're playing. I know Bebop Bebop was quite intense and and it was club based and um it was very stylized, you know, and and mm-hmm. <clears throat> Miles emerged from that with a new dynamic, you know, more space. I mean, he found in Gil Evans um, a, a kind of kinship there, someone that was equal to him in um, compositional capabilities. And, and obviously Gil was a very soft, he provided a very soft and spatial platform for Miles to, to be really flawless, you know, as opposed to the intensity of bebop music that came before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think he kind of attracted more a wider audience into into jazz music because it became more of a sort of American classical music at that point. Although jazz is viewed as American classical music through its many changes. You know, you have to look I think you have to look at the work of Bird and Dizzy Gillespie and even Monk to a certain extent as really you know, club orientated, very, very um, intense music that emerged into this platform of lots of orchestrations and mm. and super cool, and lots of space around the players to be able to, you know, really tell us who that what uh, tell us who they were musically and, and put their voice down. And Mars's tone,
0: this is of, often talked about. So there's the famous phrase like a man walking on eggshells. There seems to be a vulnerability to it. Uh, but what, what else is going on there? What, what is unique about his voice on the instrument?
1: Yeah, I guess the first thing you hear, well, as a trumpet guitar, the first thing you hear is sound. And um, I don't feel like anyone's ever, ever been able to recreate that sound that Miles has been able to um, produce. So yeah, I reckon, like you were saying, that, that um, record really kind of embellishes and really kind of exposes his beautiful sound. And yeah, he basically floats all over the record, and then from there you hear like on the records from from that moment you kind of hear his sound develop, but it's still basically the same, but just becomes stronger, and um, yeah, just more beautiful. And what the, and what does this
0: phrase "cool jazz" mean? Is it is this superimposed on this music <laughs> subsequently, or is this a real thing? Um, you know, we we see those players from those sessions. People like Lee Kernitz and and Jerry Mulligan kind of seem to become key to a, a, a sound that starts here and and go, and run with it. Is Miles Davis like a kind of link between the East and West Coast jazz sounds or? <laughs>
2: I don't think so. I mean, I've never seen him like that. To me, cool—the the, the idea of cool jazz—it's it's a whole aesthetic that goes with the music, and it's not really a East Coast West Coast thing. It's a, it's about an attitude that comes in the music, and you see that reflected in the clothes, the garms, the the whole kind of aesthetic. To you know, you see a, a classic jazz band, and they're they're all dressed to the nines. I mean, the Marsalises, you know. They cause debate because of their lingering uh, grip on tradition like this, and they—they they, you'll never see Winter Miles appear in a T-shirt, and that's the kind of aesthetic that Miles set back in the day. You know, it was all—it was all very flawless, tailored suits, and and super cool attitude, and the music reflected that. It was a music that had supreme confidence and its own voice, and I mean, obviously, cool jazz is. Is, is also a marketing term that, that is applied to the music and you know you can make of it what you will but it's it's in the words cool and jazz you just have to derive from that what you feel is you know an attitude from the music and i think miles is attitude in music you know there's no doubt about that he's a, an aspirational character i mean uh, if only i was one percent as cool as miles davis i feel like <laughs> i'd arrived as a jazz person you know yeah. And he wasn't even trying. That's, that's the annoying thing.
1: You know, I think he was really, really trying. You think so? I think he <laughs> I was just really trying. he tried. couldn't help it. He just, he just no. was, you know. No, because like what you were saying about him being from a middle, co- middle class background, I guess he was kind of fighting, I guess, the stigma that came with that. And he really wanted to come across as this really hard, cool guy. So, yeah, I kind of feel like the opposite. And I feel like the persona or uh, how he dressed and how he spoke was all kind of yeah. something he made to kind of go against what he... Like, you were talking about the vulnerability of his sound, yeah. Um it's, Yeah, it's so interesting that you can hear him being so vulnerable, but then he looks completely different from how he sounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: you you did hear the odd strange slightly bum note in in his solos and Mm. and it's not like he went back and recorded them again he would just leave them in there Mm. and then I can't remember who it was but I think it was Herbie Hancock I saw talking about playing with Miles and he spoke about one particular gig that they were doing together and it was just one of those nights where everything dropped in place perfectly every solo was on fire the crowd was 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 on top of them and they loved it and then Herbie hit this bum chord and he was absolutely gutted and, and he was like, oh, no, I messed it all up. But well, what he then heard was Miles play mm. something around that, which vindicated it and just made it normal.
1: Mm. And
2: that's the, kind of, that's the thing about Miles, he just had that ability. And, you know, I think he he did accept that he had vulnerabilities and flaws. But in that in itself is just super cool, you know. Let's um, whiz forward a little bit um, to
0: the second key phase of Miles's innovation that we're talking about today. And th- this is his, uh, this is around his 1959 album, Kind of Blue. Now, it's almost a cliche now, but isn't this one of the all-time great albums in any musical genre ever? And, and if
2: so, what what is it that makes it so special? Well, that's it. I mean, I've just come back from North Sea Jazz listening to various talks from great musicians, including Chick Corea and Gary Bartz and people that actually played with Miles. And they talk in you know, slightly reverential terms about this album. 1959 itself is an interesting year because there were four or five jazz albums that really reshaped the music in that particular year, like Dave Brubeck's Time Out, like Mingus's Art, Um*, uh, Mars's Kind of Blue. Uh, There are others I I can't bring to mind. But certainly what came out of the conversations on a regular basis was the fact that there are people who would never consider themselves jazz fans or even dare to listen to any jazz jazz. But they had they had Kind of Blue in their collection, and and it was one of their favourite albums. And it was it was the the appeal of this, the space in the music, and the beauty of the melody and the playing, and the modal uh, side of this music that just gave it a huge appeal. And of course, it's created its own kind of everlasting tsunami of interest that builds up over the years. And I think it is actually, all right, if you want to include Kenny G under jazz, it is actually (laughs) the most um, bought album of all time it still continues to top jazz charts I mean if you do a you know tell us your favorite jazz album on the radio it's always number one and it's such an enduring sound much to the dismay of Miles Davis of course who would, uh, would be mortified if I if you heard me saying this in 2019. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Sheila is it ever irritating
0: to uh, big jazz fans that that kind of blue is kind of lords it over Everything else. Do you sometimes have to like kind of go? Oh, let's forget about kind of blue for a moment.
1: Never, never. It's no. I, I don't think I've ever ever gotten that that kind of response from anyone. Maybe from the the song. So what? I guess is a is a tune that everyone likes to re recreate and redo. But the original record, I don't think there's anything like it. And once again, it was I think it's the second ever album I ever listened to of, of Miles. So the first one was "Poll Game Best," which is a, an obscure, obscure one to like kind of listen to for the first time. But then when I heard uh, kind of Blue," I think I was maybe like 14, 15, and um, yeah, that was probably like one of the albums I had on repeat, and I remember trying to learn the solo and uh, so what yeah porgy yeah. and
2: best is a beautifully orchestrated album it's a thing of beauty with gill Gil evans but, but miles with his quintet on kind of blue that they they ripped up what was happening before and created it was really the first real noticeable modal music album modal album and jazz musicians heard it and were like oh no i've got i've got to relearn everything again what's this what's this it's all in a mode you know what am i going to do now and it took musicians you know, a year, um, upwards of a year, to actually kind of rethink their whole playing in order to s- keep up with this new innovation in music. Great jazz players will tell you that.
0: Yeah. Sheila, can you tell us what modal jazz is without, like, sort of scaring the bejesus out of everybody?
1: <laughs> modal jazz is basically um, when you have one main um, scale or uh, tonal centre but a tonal centre might be a, a better way to explain. And you basically have to solo on this one chord. And um, I guess the tune, a tune that really, really uh, resembles that is once again, So What? And you've got two chords, goes up a semitone. But basically you have to solo over one, come up with new ideas. And I think that's what's challenging um, about um, modal jazz as opposed to bebop. I think with bebop, people, I think, think it's more difficult. I guess they all both have their own challenges, but with bebop, you have a lot of chords, fast-changing um, chords, and um, a lot of things to include in a short amount of time. But with modal Jazz, it's basically one or two chords you have to, to kind of make interesting enough. And, um, yeah, like you were talking about before, Miles creating the late, older he kind of got, the more space he had in his music. And you basically hear it a lot in modal jazz. What's yeah. really
2: interesting about the recording of Kind of Blue is obviously Cannibal and John Coltrane are included. But at mm-hmm. that time, John Coltrane did the first half of the recording session. Then they broke off for a bit. Then he went away and did... Uh, another album, which is groundbreaking from that same year, called uh, Giant Steps, which is completely different. So he must have had to have his mind in this beautiful, spacey, modal music. Then he went away and made this incredibly intense album. Which is is heralded as one of the, technically one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever recorded. I think he goes. I mean, you you can tell us, Shirley. I think he. It's almost sort of like science the way that he goes through every yeah. note, every every yeah. every every tone available to make some of this music. Another groundbreaking album, and then he's finished with Giant Steps and goes back to finish off Kind of Blue. And they couldn't be more different, and yet they both come from the same guy playing on these both these recordings. They're both groundbreaking albums. So it's really interesting the Coltrane interjection into, into that album and how it changed him up as well, you know, because later on Coltrane made uh, a fabulous album called Love Supreme and countless other beautiful recordings which kind of drew from Kind of Blue that space and modality.
0: You talked about the impact of Miles Davis on John Coltrane and one of the things about Davis we see again and again in his career is this ability he has to pick talent draw from what it is that they they're bringing that's fresh and new and also kind of show the way for them later on in the 60s he spots Wayne Shorter and brings him into the the fold that what does that bring to Miles and his direction
2: well here he's starting to involve young players who are bringing a new language to his music uh with with that particular quintet you know with Wayne Shorter um he had in Wayne Shorter a prolific composer mm-hmm. in fact all of the the band members contributed compositions so i think that's where you you start to see these supergroups formed by miles and and these are quite experienced young players that have been with other great band leaders as well and then when you look at look forward from that you can see what they take from being with miles you know and groups that have come up from led by Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter later on in the 70s with um, uh weather report and, and various other aggregations you know you can see that he's starting and, and even further on into his career he's starting to bring in younger players hot talent and even against like i suppose against better judgment from some of the people around him he's he's putting trust in the younger musicians to contemporize his music so mm-hmm. i think it's it's um it's a thing of trust and it's also a necessary thing for him as an artist to kind of Take from them and give back at the same time. You know, it's 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 creating a new a new wave of what he's doing, and he's almost you know making it them that's driving him along now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you basically see him as a as a band leader basically, and um, you see him um, kind of introducing and picking people, like you said, that are innovators. And I like the fact, um, like I guess during that that time, the late sixties, you have Wayne Shorter, you also have George Coleman as well. And um, at that time, I feel like you kind of, um, not like I feel like, but you, there were basically live recordings. I, I believe four more was one of them. And what you were talking about earlier before with um, Herbie Hancock playing the wrong chord, I think it was in the album, actually, um, where you hear a lot of the, the live recordings. And you basically just hear innovation and improvisation at its finest, basically. So, yeah. Um, and also you hear the development of modern music as well.
0: Yeah. I love Nefertiti. That's one of my favourite ones from that period. It seems to be the one that's the most ripe for exploration, really. If you like Kind of Blue, but you don't really know much more about Davis, or maybe you, you got into In a Silent Way, because, you know, culture tends to tell you what the important records are by an artist, doesn't mm-hmm. it? And then you kind of end up investigating them. But that period, from ESP through Nefertiti up to... Where we're we going to go next um uh, is seems to be ripe for exploration,
2: yeah, I mean Mars Davis has the accolade of having probably the most loved and the most hated jazz album in the same catalogue. <laughs> you've got kind of Blue, and we've just spoken about how that continues to be one of the most loved albums, and then you've got on the corner that was kind of universally panned by critics, and even the players that that played on it didn't get it. dave Lehman was was on it, I think, and they didn't quite understand it. But, you know, Miles was born out to be completely right as an artist in smashing up the the status quo and and doing his own thing. By the
0: way, listeners, if you want to hear any of the Miles Davis music we're talking about on this podcast, do head over to the Mojo Innovators podcast playlist at Apple Music. And good that Chris mentioned on the corner because we're going to, again, skip forward slightly and have a look at the kind of watershed... I suppose, of this period of Miles's music where we go into the phase known as electric Miles Davis. In 1969, he records In a Silent Way, he follows that up in short order uh, with Bitches Brew in 1970. Sheila, why are these albums revered by jazz fans and jazz musicians?
1: Um, I don't know why everyone has their own opinion, but I guess during that time it was quite innovative once again what he was doing, especially with in a silent way. Um I I guess that was the first time I think maybe production or post production was really introduced in terms of like how he chopped up um the album um and added effects and what he what he used and the musician he uses as well. He didn't use um uh the typical jazz musicians. So I think that was really interesting and very innovative. Once again, he was kind of pushing the boundaries, um, whether you liked it or not. Yeah, so I just think it was really interesting. Once again, you see him in a different light as a band leader, as a musician. And um, once again, he's also loads of different musicians he's working with are also taking or sharing the light as much as he is as well.
0: And what's the sound and instrument instruments that he's bringing in here? Because, um, you know, we have these electric electric guitars coming in we have like electric piano coming in we have like percussion sections coming in
2: where's all this coming from in terms of what's miles drawing on rock he's drawing on rock music he met betty a sassy woman who became his wife and she had him there listening to all sorts of, of rock albums and r&b you know he loved sly and the family stone um later on he embraced funk music um i mean if imagine if you will almost uh a utopian co- collision of avant-garde classical music and rock and funk. There it is, right there. Those are the albums. And and he was accused of selling out. He was accused of kind of, you know, playing to that audience and, and leaving behind the jazz crowd. And in many respects, um, you know, he was actually trying to appeal to young black americans with this new music because he knew that they weren't really listening to jazz on jazz radio stations he had to get to them through trying to embrace r&b and rock music and at one point he was playing as a as an opening act for huge rock bands as well you know back in the good old days when you used Mm. to go and see your favorite superstar rock band And they'd have a jazz musician on as support act rather than, you know, somebody singing over a tape or whatever like it is these days over a CD. And so it helped to shape his music and it helped to introduce bigger audiences to his music, which is why it was not critically acclaimed but quite successful in, you know, chart appearances for some of his albums. And, of course, the jazz community, the jazz police, as I like to call them, those guys, the traditionalists, they were horrified They're horrified by it because he's gone into rock music. And, and that was the sound coming out of the you know, civil rights movement. That was the sound Miles was doing. It was this dark, sinister, kind of very self-assured music, expansive stuff. And right in the middle of it are new innovations in keyboards and synthesizers and rock guitars and percussion and funk.
0: Sheila, can you maybe draw a tune or a particular record out from this period that you like...
1: Honestly, this is not really my type of music. Yeah, I'll be lying if yeah. I was to, If you yeah. said you
0: loved uh, Bitches yeah. Brew.
1: Yeah.
2: I would go for <laughs> records like Shh, Peaceful from In A Silent Way mm. or maybe Miles Runs The Voodoo Down from Bitches Brew.
0: That's really alarming music, isn't it? Uh, that's one of the things I like about it is yeah. that its it's kind of scary. I mean, the voodoo is in the name of the song and it feels like you're being drawn into something ceremonial and quite threatening. Mm. Because there's a kind of, there's a cultural aspect to what's going on here, isn't it? Because Miles is embracing the kind of Afrocentric kind of thoughts that are going on in uh, American culture around Mm. that time.
2: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, Miles was um, very influenced by Jimi Hendrix. Um, I think... They wanted to record together, but I don't think that ever happened. In fact, I think he divorced his wife because he thought she was having an affair with him, that was Betty <laughs> at the time. But later, he went to his funeral. And, and obviously, if you think about the really big, kind of sinister funk, blue sound of Jimi Hendrix, I don't know, Red House, or tunes like that, you can really hear that huge influence from Hendrix and the band of gypsies in Miles' electric period. And if only... You know, if only they'd they'd spent some time making great music together, that that we could uh, we could reflect on. But um, yeah, that was the sound at the time, and um, mix that in with a little bit of of you know Vietnam War, and there's some statements going on there.
0: And I suppose after Bitches Brew, you kind of you get Jack Johnson, and as you mentioned, the uh, On the Corner record is is around that time. Aghata, Pangea he really does double down on kind of rock, funk and sod you jazz police, doesn't he?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is where Miles is, not really in the studio anymore. He's just playing big live events. And that's where those albums come from in the main, you know, live concerts. Um, and then there was a hiatus after that. I mean, he was having problems with his own demons at the time and uh, almost got murdered, you know, um, He had a drug problem. There's all sorts going on. It was kind of hectic in his life. But yeah, mostly those recordings are are expansive, unbelievable live recordings, which is usually the best place to experience it. But they became some legendary Miles Davis recordings.
0: We mentioned earlier this idea of Miles Davis not just being an innovator in music, but kind of like uh, a patron saint of innovation in music because he does what he wants, damn the torpedoes, And he suffers commercially for the decisions he makes. I mean, as an artist yourself, Sheila, is is that one of the things about Miles Davis that really artists kind of appreciate and, you know, take to heart about him?
1: Yeah, for sure. I don't know how many people have actually or are able to do that now um, because there's a lot of pressure to kind of tick certain boxes and uh, I guess maybe everyone's trying to stay relevant and um, within trying to stay relevant I don't think anyone's really trying to take or make those big risks and really think purely about the music yeah I don't know I don't know how many people are actually actually doing that Um, not not actually a a criticism but I don't know how many people are actually making those big um, moves
2: there's a kind of electric period 2.0 actually you know which comes later when he and Marcus Miller and mm-hmm. Jason Miles got in the studio together and made Tutu, another groundbreaking album. And um, and Miles loved the pop song as well, and he and he wanted to get to a, a, a popular audience, but but be able to play his music. And it was a genius move involving Marcus Miller because they, you got a multi instrumentalist there with some really interesting ideas who can play, who really can play funk music, who played with the greatest mm-hmm. of them all and still does. Um, <clears throat> and even after that. Miles continued to screw up what he had before, and his last studio album was a hip-hop album. I mean, he worked with Easy Mo B, who Puff Daddy was working with at very early stages of his hip-hop label. And some of that stuff is quite enduring, you know. It still sounds contemporary almost to this day. And in fact, Miles is still talking to us because there's an Mm -hmm. album coming from the vaults now that he started in the mid-80s and never got finished off. And his estate has finished it off and they've contemporized it with certain vocalists. And again, that's embracing hip-hop and electronic music and pop music. So he's you know he's he's still talking to us and still setting a standard in in many ways even with the kind of noodly sampley stuff that they're finding from from the archives and then superimposing into contemporary beats his, his voice is still there it's mm-hmm. it's, it's mad actually but mm-hmm. um, it's you know it's it's kind of an honour to him that mm-hmm. this is still going on. I don't know how he'd feel about it, but 20 <laughs> how many years now? 27 years after he's passed, oh, yes, um, oh, yeah, he's still yeah. he's still out there talking to us. You know, yeah. we, we we play some music on Jazz FM from the new album at the moment, you know, and yeah. everyone's loving it.
1: And then also like on that note of him um working with different musicians from different genres. I think you're seeing that a lot now with a lot of jazz musicians um kind of Working with different musicians, especially in the UK, seeing musicians work with grime artists, um, pop artists. Yeah, people really are kind of coming out of the so-called uh, jazz scene, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's,
2: no, there's no doubt Miles would have had um, Stormzy on, yeah. <laughs> on one of his records. No doubt at, at all about it. But um, I don't know how old would he be, about 97 or 102 or something. But yeah. <laughs> he, would have, he would have if he could have, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. Well, I I can't imagine a better spot to
0: end our conversation on. Miles Davis innovating from beyond the grave. Mm. And um, thank you so much, Chris Phillips from from Jazz FM. And sheila Maurice Gray. thank you for joining us today. To hear all the music we've discussed over the last half hour or so, visit the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe. Next time... Jenny Bully, Keith Cameron and Victoria Segal will be talking about The Cure. The producer was Simon Barnard, and I'm Danny Eccleston. Thanks for listening.